Greetings and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday to bring you um, stories about the aftermath of crime, to enlighten and to educate and to shine the light upon um, issues that need to be illuminated, and also to um, to provide um, enjoyment and uh, education on the, on the radio uh, this day and uh, on the archives as always. So um, welcome to fall, everyone, and um, it's it's very nice to uh, to be here on a lovely Saturday here in Connecticut, and I hopefully it's that way in South Carolina. Uh, but uh, would like to uh, introduce you very soon to our featured guest, who who is from the Southwest, and uh, we have a very um, interesting and diverse show with regard to uh, victim services and how they are provided in that in that corner of the world and uh, someone who has has also walked the path with us in terms of of being of being a survivor and has a, a very um, highly credentialed background for what she does and from from my knowledge is a, is a very personable person so I'm very excited to have Jan Blazer Upchurch with us. But before we start with her, I want to welcome in Delilah. Uh, good morning, good evening to you, Delilah, and uh, how are things there? Good Saturday, Donna. <laughs> it's great. Um, <laughs> this is this is another show that I think uh, listeners are going to be very, very well informed by the time the end of it comes because we've got another perspective from someone who's worked for their rights, worked for the victims' rights. And I, I'm just, like you, very excited to have uh, Jan with us today. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, thank, uh, I want to thank uh, Jan for, for, being, for being so um, welcoming in terms of my education. And thank you, LinkedIn, or else I would have never um, been introduced to her. Um, so, you know, without further ado... Uh, let me just give you a very brief thumbnail sketch, and then uh, she can uh, she can fill in a lot of the blanks, and we we have much territory to cover. And uh, so, uh, uh, w- welcome, Jan, and uh, welcome to the Shattered Lives Radio family. Good morning, and good morning, Saturday. <laughs> yes, yes, I know it's very early out there for you, and thanks for being a trooper. Um, let, let me just say that you you currently are the uh, victim services administrator for the Arizona Department of Corrections, but you also have had um, your, your share of personal trials and tribulations in that you were married to a person in law enforcement who unfortunately lost his life in the in the line of duty, correct? And I I believe you also have had some affiliations because of that tragedy with. Um, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, uh, or was lost in a, a DUI uh, accident. And um, my understanding is also that you you have done a lot with legislation in Arizona with regard to these issues, as well as a, a particular organization that deals with with um, uh, grieving uh, families and law enforcement, which really does not get their due. Um, and I know there's a lot there's a lot to talk about there as well as inroads that you have made um with the with victims in arizona so um why don't you why don't you give us a a, a more uh detailed background and hopefully I have you know given a a little bit of insight into into who you are as a person certainly um you know it's it's you go through you start out with life and you have these goals and perspectives about what you think your life is going to be like and then um then things change and the path you were on suddenly changes and um you sometimes go down that road kicking and screaming and saying I don't want to be here but you are so 
you know, I was no different than, you know, I um, moved to Arizona from the Midwest and was happy to be down here. I met my husband, who happened to be an Arizona Highway Patrol um, trooper, and um, we had a great life, and we lived in all different parts of Arizona, not necessarily the garden spots of Arizona, but uh, at various small towns and uh, along I-40, um, kind of rural areas, and uh, experienced uh, different uh, types of perspectives about being part of the law enforcement community. Some people loved you, some people didn't love you, so that was a whole different perspective there um, that I had ever been involved with. But um, all that very much changed um, when my husband was a sergeant with the with his agency and was out assisting two other um, troopers investigating a DUI fatality. And this occurred on August the 31st of 1990. And um, they were um, subsequently um, struck and killed by another drunk driver that came down the road while they were uh, at the crash site. Wow. And it killed my husband um, and the uh, and another officer at the at the scene, and the third officer was almost hit. So it um, was a devastating. Um, it was it was devastating. John and I had been married three years, and um, um, he was 36 years old. And all of a sudden, um, my future just shattered. And that was, um, it took a long time for me to figure out and which path I needed to go, how I needed to go, and why I should go, why I should live. Uh, it, you know, you go through all those huge emotions about why this happened and just trying to figure out the, all the details about why that happened. And that was really kind of my first experience really dealing with the, you know, crime victims, dealing with the, the law. Although my husband was a, a law enforcement, that really wasn't my world. I was an administrative assistant for a management consulting company. So, it, you know, I heard him tell the stories, but I was really, you know, the, the observer. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, it, it, you know, threw me into this criminal justice system that, number one, the Victims' Bill of Rights in Arizona had just passed uh, in the legislation, and I met a lot of people that were involved in that over time. And I, how amazing it is that, that John was killed in, when he was, and the Victims' Bill of Rights had just passed, so a lot of the agencies and what have you didn't really know how to deal with the victims. They didn't really know about the notifications, and they didn't do it all very well because they were still learning too. But, you know, it was really a victim advocate that was the one that said, yes, she can have that um, that that accident report. She needs to know how it happened. And, you know, going to the site, and I needed to do those things for me to try to understand how this horrible event had happened. And then there was a trial, and going through that trial, and uh, and the man was convicted of two counts of um, manslaughter and was sentenced to prison for 21 years. So, but just going through that whole whole area, it just forever changed how I perceived everything in life, really. And the relationships and friendships and and all of those things that were touched by that one event, um, it really, I did have to reinvent myself because then everything that I had done at that point changed and no longer was I satisfied or even had the inclination to continue on working with the kind of work that I was doing. And I needed to find a reason to go on. And and that victim advocate for MAD was really an instrumental part of who how, how, of that change. She said, you can, after a time, said, you can go out and start talking and speaking because you have a, you have a story to tell. And and so I still remember the first time I went to this high school and started talking about talking about John. Of course, this was a year after after his death, 
and um, how how frightened and how scared I was and how emotional it was, but yet at the end of that, how uplifting it was in a way because now more people would know who John was, not only um, who who he was before, but the consequences of people's choices. Right. And, Did and you tend act. to gravitate um, in initially to the to the law enforcement community, to friends that you had there, because the, you know your other friends maybe at work didn't understand and and that type of thing in terms of building building a new bridge. It's certainly, that they were an, uh, that became a very m- important part of my life in those relationships, and as as often law enforcement are connected to each other because of the of the community that is a very special community but i then became as as time went on then i became the expert and then i knew more about uh drunk driving issues and and what uh, can and can't happen breathalyzers and sobriety checkpoints and all of the the legal aspects of what can and can't be done and and really supporting those officers that said this is a problem and this is the thing this is the area that we want to work on because you know we need to educate and so it became a prevention piece for me as well as probably more of a prevention um message for me and then I started volunteering with Mothers Against Drunk Driving and and really did a lot of speaking and got involved in and trying to pass some legislation and and testified, you know, numerous times over the years at the state, um, Arizona State Legislature, um, trying trying to make some of those changes. You know, it took 11 years um, in our state before they lowered the blood alcohol level to .08. But, you know, we just kept going back every year and testifying, and finally... You weren't going away. Right. Yeah. What are the the laws in terms of uh, the punitive nature for DUI now in Arizona, I would imagine is probably one of the one of the most strict um, because of all of your efforts. Or yes. is it at least equal with uh, a lot of the other states? Arizona is kind of known for more the strict on their DUI um, laws, and um, because now back in 1991, when the man was convicted of John's and uh, David's death. Um, he was charged with um, manslaughter because most juries just didn't feel. Now we we know second degree um, uh, murder is generally a very is more the norm now, and in some states they've even um, convicted people on DUI deaths with a first degree murder if if there wow. you know there's other kinds of um, actions that occurred prior to the to the death so. You know, it is taken much more seriously, and certainly in our state, um, it is very uh, serious. Ob- obviously, mm-hmm. it's still a problem everywhere. Uh, drunk driving is, is right. still a problem, and it still kills and in- injures people. But an insight to that whole piece was working with other crime victims and and helping them along the way, because you're kind of trying to help yourself. And and then you run across all these personalities and all these different stories that 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 um, change you and make you stop and think about how can we do things better, how can we do things different, how can we approach. So it became also the prevention message, but then it became who's standing up for these people to help them through some of this this um, you know this walk, this journey that that people have. The criminal justice system is so confusing. People don't understand that you know how it all happens and who who the prosecutor is and what their role is and you know and some prosecutors are wonderful and great with uh, being working with victims and and others are not so who is that advocate who are those um, those people that can be there to kind of fill in the blanks so to speak uh, mm-hmm. for sometimes when the prosecutor doesn't always um, share that information so. Mm-hmm. It really became kind of being that helper to fill in the blanks, to help where, you know, other people didn't think about the help. You know, what about, you know, your coverage on your insurance? I mean, if you're a, you're a crime victim and somebody doesn't have insurance um, on their car, which is often happens, 
right. is that make sure that you have these these special under insurance and uninsured motorist coverage because that protects you if somebody hit, hits you that doesn't have insurance. And for our state, that's a huge, huge issue. And just explaining to the the people about that and the importance of of that small thing is is uh, helpful. Sure. It, now, so it sounds as if um, you know this. You saw the that the need was great, and that maybe tended to energize you and helped you through your grief. And I'm I'm wondering for my benefit and the benefit of the audience. Um, how did did that point? Um, how did you get from where you were then to to where you are now with the DOC? Well, interesting. <laughs> it, it was an interesting path because um, going back to when John and I were married, we lived in a small town in Winslow, Arizona. It's on on I forty in northern Arizona, mm-hmm. and. Um, because I was married to a Department of Public Safety officer, people weren't so inclined to hire me because I was law enforcement's uh, wife. So I ended up, there was a new prison being built in Winslow at that time, and I ended up getting the job as the secretary to the warden. Well, the warden uh, was a fairly new warden at the time, and uh, he wanted somebody that wasn't from from that particular uh, community at that time, and um, uh, because he wanted to have somebody that you know wouldn't gossip a lot and know everybody in town and that kind of stuff, because it's a very small community. And so here I come. We had transferred from another city in in Arizona, and so I was new to the community, so I didn't really know very many people, and. Uh, had a difficult time getting, you know, a job. So I applied for the position, got it, and that that warden who I worked for back in would be about 1986 ends up being the new director of the Department of Corrections in um was appointed by Governor Brewer in in 2009. And um so all those years later and I had somewhat kept in touch and I'd worked with him for three, about three years at that time and then then uh, John got transferred and we moved from Winslow uh, in, into southern Arizona to Tucson. And um, so I was at a Peace Officer Memorial Board meeting and I connected back with um, Director Ryan and um, he he said, you know what, I'm, you know, we reconnected and he said, I'm looking for a new administrator for the Office of Victim Services. And he said, um, I know you live <laughs> not where, where where the job is, but would you consider um, thinking about applying for the position? And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I came home, talked to my um, husband and uh and we decided that uh, that was the right thing after all the many years of doing all the different work that I had done with crime victims, uh, victims' rights issues, um, with grief issues, all of these kinds of things. It just seemed like the f- perfect spot. So It all came together. Timing is everything, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, it was just one of those things that was certainly not planned, and it was just a matter of uh, uh, of being there at the right place, the right meeting at the right time. And sure. so I've been I've been w- with the with the Department of um, Corrections for um, since July of 2009. Mm-hmm. Well, you know something that struck me in our in our phone conversations um, because my point of reference is how we do things here in my state in a Connecticut, and we had um, gone through a, a parole hearing um, two or three years ago, and, and the perpetrator is coming up at the five-year benchmark when he gets to try again if he if he so chooses. Um, and um, one thing that, like I say, that struck me was that your system is very different than that in terms of, shall I say, I guess to use the baseball analogy, how many times they get their chance at bat here. Can you can you go into in, in getting into some of the post conviction services that you provide? Can you tell um, our audience what what um, what what it's like in Arizona in terms of that aspect, and maybe we can do some comparisons to other other regions, and then we can talk more specifically about 
you know, some of the services that you provide? Certainly. Um, you know, this victim services office was somewhat new when when I um, got the position, and so I've probably increased more of the services than what had been done before, but just because it was really needed and there was such a, um, again, there, there was kind of a, a gap there that um, people just needed to know more information. So what, what, what our office does is that our primary role were mandated by law to notify crime victims prior to an inmate's release upon the death of the inmate and or if the inmate escapes. And so um, victims then uh, need to opt in um, to our Department of Corrections so that and let us know they want to be notified in the events of um, related to, to the inmates' um, um, release status and those kinds of things. and um, But beyond that notification piece, there are all kinds of other kind of services and questions that come up for victims. Sometimes the inmate tries to you know, contact the victims, and then so then we again facilitate between the victims and then the um, prison complexes as to how to to best deal with that that issue and and to prevent that uh, that kind of behavior. But as to the parole hearings, that became a big issue because we have a lot of victims that want to attend the the parole hearings, but again, it's a very scary prospect and and it's frightening because they don't always know what kind of a release or what kind of a hearing it is because there's different kinds of hearings sometimes there um hearings um about modifying the sentence the inmate has the right after they've been in prison for a period of time to apply for the board of executive clemency or the parole board um to review their sentence to see if it was excessive well, if you're a victim and you just get a letter from the Board of Executive Clemency saying that inmate so-and-so is, you know, up for a hearing, automatically people think they're getting out of prison, and it may not be that at all. So our office is just there a lot to, number one, answer some of those questions and to clarify those questions and also be there for them to um help them either if they want to do a victim impact statement during the parole hearing, uh, you know, for a parole hearing, they can do that. But the way the the, the criminal code is written, and it is very, um, it's very strange at times, there's, depending on when the crime occurred, um, sometimes the inmate has, um, after serving 25 years, they're eligible for parole. And then after that 25-year mark, they may be eligible to come back for a hearing every six months. Wow. And so we're in other <laughs> in other criminal cases, because there's different criminal codes that a legislature wrote uh, we, years ago that if you, if there's, for instance, there is this year and a half time frame that if a person committed a crime during this year and a half, then their rules about when they're eligible for for parole are different than they are for somebody that committed the the exact same crime, you know, two years before or two years after that time frame. And it's just a very strange and uh, weird kind of dynamic for... Is that because of a particular case that established precedence or something like that? It must have been because it's, you know, really much older cases, so we don't run across that too often. The most of the times that we're dealing with people that go to parole hearings are um, the ones that it's either six months and sometimes the parole board can offset it to a year, but again, it depends on when the crime occurred and under which statute that falls. And then other times, um, there's the the hearings that um, they they can they can always there'll be the inmate can always reapply for um, a parole hearing a year a year after their parole hearing. So trying to keep up and trying to clarify that. So we're working with the Board of Executive Clemency to find, you know, to understand that. Then we're also, we have a time computation unit in our Department of Corrections that that's what they do. They calculate sentences and when they're eligible for all these kinds of things. So we work closely 
with um, with both of those um, entities to make sure that you know we're giving the right information and we're sharing the right information with the victims so that they can understand you know what what the dynamics are and what's mm-hmm. the time frames for for many of these how, cases. How large is your staff, Jan? We only have uh, really five people in our office, so. Uh, we're very busy um in in what we do and um i'm you know i'm really grateful and blessed that we have such good people in our office that really can do the things that we need to do in sometimes in very difficult situations and and um so we we have um a seasoned advocate that i w- i'm very grateful that i have and she's been a great great uh, assistance and help because um, knows her stuff really well, and it has been, you know, that that's helpful. That's part of it. Kind of understand that path that people have gone on. If people had have never gone through prosecution phase, they don't quite understand. And believe it or not, there's a lot of victim advocates out there. Sometimes they don't understand that component. So by the time the you know the p- conviction happens, if you kind of don't understand the kind of mess that that sometimes trials and prosecution phase, if there's plea agreements and all of the different discussions and decisions that are made during that prosecution phase, if that has been difficult for the victims, by the time they now, that individual or individuals has now been sentenced to state prison and now they're in the post-conviction victim services component, you know, some people ha- are very angry. Um, they're un- unhappy about what what happened, um, and so our role is to try to help them to understand it, and then to provide them support and mo- and information so that they can process th- things much much easier. And when you really look at the whole criminal justice system and and understand how that all works, really the victims are in the post-conviction phase of the uh, criminal justice system, system much longer than they are in any other com- part of the criminal justice system. That's so, a very important point. Yeah, yeah, I, did, I didn't really think about it. No, but that's long-term. That's the rest of your life. And, you know, uh, it, it doesn't. And given your the, the quirkiness, if that's a good word, of your laws, of your statutes, you know what? What is the overall impact in terms of how how you know things were decided? The impact on the victims themselves. Well, it, it you know comes out in dis- various different ways. I think that um, there's a lot of stress. Um, the victims you know experience um, a lot of grief, and most people don't understand that uh, that unique grief that just because and you you hear this a lot from victims well you know it's been 40 years since your father died or your husband died or your brother died um or your son died um you should you should be over it why are you still so upset about this um and and people that have not faced those kinds of terrible horrific kinds of um deaths don't understand it, um, but it is important for us to explain that because it is a grief that is is different and it's it's long and it's deep uh, for people, and I mean that deep because it's part of you who you are and it's part of your soul really because it is um, something that people that have had horrible things like that happen and then once again they're called back to go to a parole hearing or or you know once again the inmate appeals their sentence and all of a sudden you know then they start getting paperwork from the attorney general's office you have this whole thing that just says can i ever just have this done and really right. until that per- until that inmate passes on there is it is always part of that victim's life until they pass on and that's Absolutely. And that's the unfairness. Have, have you found a, a particular effective way of getting other people to understand that fact about long-term grief and it's not over in two weeks? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's the ongoing challenge, I think, because every time um, you know I talk about um, when I go out and do presentations or just in the informal conversations with people, um, I talk about that. To, you know, if anybody asks, I talk about it. Um, I think it's an important thing that people need to understand that everything's not surface and everything's not over in six months, um, and that you know, and you try to have to try to explain that to people that don't quite um, have never had a loss. It's difficult to share, but it is you want to continue to to talk about that and to address that because you know crime happens to a lot of people and most people know of somebody that's been a crime victim of one nature or another and you know even if if you've had if you've had a theft in your house or a robbery or anything like that it, it that upsets people because they're you know because their their security has been violated so you kind of put that in perspective of somebody that's had a loved one murdered um or are severely injured in the it's long term. It's still a crime, and it still upsets your life. Like Delilah, isn't um, haven't isn't this a recurring theme? We kind of beat this drum in terms of a lot of the shows that we do, and we can never say this too little about yes, that this is a, this is a long term thing, and it impacts crime victims in so many different ways. I'm just wondering. I wanted to bring you in here in terms of any questions you may have as well for Jan. On these issues. Well, it's you know, again, it's a recurring theme where a criminal may be sentenced to 25 years, but the victim sentenced to life. And right. you know, I think my question would be to you, Jen, with your experience working with victims of crime and and their rights. Where do you find that there's a balance between the rights of the criminal and the rights of the victim, and is there a way to balance that? Um, there really isn't a, um, there isn't a balance for sure. The uh, perpetrator, defendant, inmate, their rights always trump the victims. And that's the way it is in our state, and it pretty much is throughout the nation. Um, some judges are um, maybe ensure that victims have their say, and some prosecutors are very good at being able to include the victims in the conversation as to what kind of charges are they're, that they're going to charge a defendant in a particular case, and they'll listen to a victim's um, perspective. But they don't have to um, adhere to what the, the victim's wishes are. Um, the law is um, pretty clear about that they don't want to, you know, that the defendants has the right to be heard, they have the right to, um, you know, go through all of these, um, the rights of this and the rights of that. I mean, that is the way the law is written um, as as I know it. And um, it's frustrating, but what we try to do is we can – we can try to change people's behaviors to a level of being able to um, at least reach out to victims more so and getting their pers- perspective on on, on uh, various aspects of, of the system. But it, I'm told, and uh, until the law completely changes, it will never, the victim's rights will never be trumped. There won't be a balance. Right. Have you seen where the use of um, victim victim impact statements, and I'm not sure if we had talked about the service that I provide to victim, the customized um, statement. Uh, have you seen that that um, has changed the outcome of trials and in, in your experience in your state? It certainly impacts um, people, I think, and I think it's an important story to tell and an important perspective. Um, and I, even in the parole part of it, um, you know, most of these, this board of executive clemency, the parole board that's hearing about the inmates 
uh, reason for wanting to get out of prison or be on parole. Um, you can't not, I mean, that is such an important aspect of what the crime was because there was a reason the inmate's in prison. And the, for the family, um, the victims of, of that crime to talk about what the reality of that crime did and how it has impacted their whole life, it is huge. And I think because people forget, and it's one thing to read about a crime, it's a whole nother perspective to have somebody stand up there before the board and verbalize what um, the crime did, the death did to the to that family and how that has impacted their whole life and sometimes the generations of their family. So that is so important, and I always encourage greatly uh, individuals, if they can come to parole hearings, even if they can't be physically there, to call in because that is also an uh, uh, um possibility for victims to be able to call in and and talk about their victimization and why this inmate should not be considered for release or you know perhaps they should perhaps they feel like that they that, that the inmate should be available for release but to talk about the story because the story is important because in the parole board then can ask questions of that inmate about you know what their perspective was about committing that crime right I, it humanizes it humanizes the victim because a lot of times the yeah. parole hearing officers in our in my experience they know nothing about no. the, the victim and and to provide photographs and I don't know if in your state you're you're able to do like video conferencing if the if the uh, the victim is not up to attending physically, but you know the fact that you could do a, a conference call is good. But do you find that as well that they're they virtually have there's a blank slate in terms of knowing much about the person that was killed, but they're they're up on all, all of the crimes that the perpetrator did when you go into that hearing room. Right, because sometimes the family, and this has happened on several hearings that I've sat in on, is that the because the family was there at the trial, they know and they had the conversation with the prosecutor about what the original charges were. Now, the, in parole hearings, you can talk about all that stuff. It's like, okay, well, this is what they were supposed to, or this is one of the considerations because of this, this, and this. And they know a lot of people that have been through this for 25-plus years know this information forwards and backwards, and they know um, all of the aspects about the crime because it affected, you know, it's impacted their whole life. And mm-hmm. they know all the nuances that is not in written in those reports. Um, and, and they know what what occurred at the crime, if there was a relationship with the crime victims and um, the perpetrator at the time. They know all those d- dynamics that there is no way that that can ever be written in, in, a, in a written report. And sometimes that really um, uh, provides an opportunity for the parole board then to ask further questions of the inmate to get a perspective on, you know, or, you know whether he's going to um, reoffend and and what his, you know, whether he, I say him, but he, he or she are going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. So the, it's the an important, important family members. I'm sorry. Are are the uh, perpetrators' family members also there on monitor if 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 they choose to be there? Yes, yeah. Um, they allow for. Um, we just updated probably about a um, year and a half ago, where the inmate is not physically in the parole hearing room. They're uh, in a secure room in the prison complex where they're housed. And so they're on the phone, but they're on video. So the right. parole board can see them as the victims can see them, as their as the inmate families can see them. And um, so everybody has an opportunity to um, talk about, you know, th- their perspective about the inmate being released. So it is helpful for, number one, for victims to see that inmate but when we started that prior to a, prior to that happening, it was always just on the phone. 
So now that they have video conferencing, I then we had to start preparing victims that now you're going to physically see this person. He can't see you, but you can see them. And for a lot of people that have not seen that particular inmate, you know, in 25 plus years uh, from the time of the trial, it was a very emotional um, perspective it, too. So I can vouch to that. My my 80 80 year old mother at the time was looking for some spark of of recognition, of remorse, of something. She kept staring at that monitor, looking for for something, and there just there just wasn't, you know. And it was heartbreaking, Jan. It really was. Yeah. You know, it, sometimes it maybe it does more damage to see the person because you get more information. I don't know, but you know, it, this is all so important, and this is this is really not addressed by so many people. There's so much more that we need to impart about the parole hearing process and whatnot. And, you know, I, I know another aspect that you deal with, and we hadn't ha- had a chance to talk about this on any other show, and I wanted you to perhaps address this if you would, is you're also involved with, with victims with regard to um, executions. Is that not right? That is correct, yes. Can you talk that about is, that a bit? Uh, certainly. Um it is certainly something, uh, again, you go down that road and you never imagine what's quite at the other end. So, um, you know, they had not had executions in our state for quite some time and for one reason or another. And then when the courts, um, uh, changed, you know, allowed for it, uh, we started having executions basically in the fall of 2010 was the first execution and since then I've gone and part- uh, gone and uh, um sat in on at least 14 executions since that time. Wow. Um and and you know the important thing I think to to always think about these kinds of things are serious matters for certain. Um people have very various different kinds of feelings about an execution. And then there's society, and then there's the neighbor, and then there's the person at the grocery store that all has a, an opinion about the execution and whether people should or should not go. And so our role is is really just connecting <clears throat> connecting with those victims, uh, preparing uh, to assist them uh, through support of going to the execution if that's what they want to do. So we have 35 days from the time the Arizona Supreme Court determines uh, an execution date. And so we have 35 days until the execution occurs. So we have um, that short amount of time to connect with the victims, um, to have conversations with them, to find out do they want to go um, or do they not, and, and, and just listen to their um, their perspective, their their thoughts on the whole process. And, you know, it matters little what, what uh, my opinion is or our victim advocate's opinion is on execution. Our role is helping them to get through this event that they may or may not uh, are are not sure whether they do or or not uh, want to participate in. Some people are very clear right from the get-go that this is what they need to do, whether it's their own personal need or I told my mother or my father, my aunt, my uncle, um, my grandparent that I would go, that somebody would be there um, to see this done. And um, so you have people that just share a lot of those those kinds of information but so there's lots of conversations with those family members that want to um know what's the right thing for them and you know of course what's right for me and what's right for uh somebody um down the street is not necessarily right for you Barry. So yeah. it, it, you, each person needs to make that decision, and we have those conversations. And sometimes people, you know, are not sure what they want to do until maybe the day before or the night before or the morning of. So mm-hmm. so we just go with the flow and, and really just go with where they're at emotionally and just support whatever it is that they want to do. So Can I've you had, describe the physical circumstances, too, once you go there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do they actually I actually see a person behind the glass or whatever. 
Oh, yeah. I go through everything that we do and how, you know, the morning of, uh, you know, our executions are generally at 10 o'clock in the morning and or have been. And so we we are very clear with with the victims right from the get-go. This is the date that, of the execution. This is the time of the execution. But at any time that there could be a stay because there's ongoing appeals that are always going on throughout this whole 35-day period. So we continually, every time we have a conversation with them, you know, we remind them of that because we don't know, and we have had a few that have been delayed um, hours or even days or even weeks uh, or months or even a year before they are they resurface again uh, mm-hmm. for another. I can't walk. imagine emotionally going going as the going through that. It's it's just I, I it, can't imagine it. Yeah, it, it's it's. I can't imagine either. I mean, it's just difficult, and it's it's difficult to kind of keep reminding people. Now, you know, if if people don't live in the state too, there are some people that are thinking about flying in from other states. So then you sure. say, okay, you know, this is the date, but you know, it could change. So you know, this is going to be an expense, and so some people choose to it, and it works out. And you know, so far that's 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 what's happened, but. Just the emotional perspective. You then you hear the backstories, and then you hear about you know all of these other aspects of this these people's lives and these families' lives, and how this death has you know has affected them, and sometimes their relationships, and sometimes you know all of those things. But you know all of the 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 important part of what we do is really supporting that person and really letting them know exactly what to expect. So we know that we're going to go to the staging area one and this is where we meet the first thing, uh, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning. And then then we tell them what they can't bring and what because then we're going to go inside the prison and so you can't bring your cell phones, you can't do this. And, you, I mean, you just clarify things that they can and oh, the can't. Rules. Yeah, what the rules are and what it's going to be like. So what happens is that when there's an execution, that the prison is basically locked down. So when we're walking inside the prison to go, you know, to where the execution the viewing is, room to the viewing room, yeah, um, is there's no inmates wandering around. So that's that's helpful because it is you're really it's it's kind of eerie in a sense that because it's just quiet. And uh, and there's no people around, so you're being escorted. You and uh, the victim's advocate and myself and and the victims um, were being escorted from you know from, from point A to basically point B. And the way they have it set up in our our agency is that um, they have the uh, inmates' um, uh, family or um, um, people that that they're to view the execution. We have the um, community, which could be legislators, the attorney general's office people, um, various other uh, digni- uh, people from government or law enforcement that are there. Then we have the media. Um, then then we have the, the victims' um, um, uh, witnesses. And so we're the last people to come into the room and the first to leave. So that's good. Then they keep each one of these groups separately, and each group is uh, escorted separately to the um, execution area. And um, so you don't interact. And you know, I mean, even, even though it's not a huge room, it's not like you're standing around chit-chatting either. Um, I mean, right. everything's yeah. very quiet and everything. And so the execution takes place. And is this a chemical? Chemical? Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lethal injection is is uh, what is being used at this point. So um, that is, you know, once you get there and then it's just monitoring people, making sure people are doing okay, and um, and then, you know, when it's done, then they basically, you're escorted out, and um, then we spend some, then the victims have the right to whether, we talk to them obviously beforehand if they want to make comments uh, to the media, if they want to speak, uh, because the the uh, PIO of our agency, the uh, um, 
public information officer always does a um, little press conference after the, the execution because there's lots of media generally there in, right. in this one classroom that they have. And if the victims want to speak, um, we're there to support them. If they don't want to speak, we're there to support them. So we really leave it up to people. Mm-hmm. And I've had people at the last minute change their mind and said, yeah, I do want to say something. I do. Is there a, a formal debriefing uh, period or time or session or whatnot or – you know, you well, follow we, up with them after? A lot of times we'll visit with them and we'll talk to them afterwards a little bit, but sometimes people are still processing that, so we don't really go sure. into too much about it. About a day later, we'll call every each one of the individuals and we'll have a conversation with them. And then we'll follow up again in a couple of days, um, sometimes two or three days. It really depends on the person. And right. um, and then some people just don't want to hear from you anymore, and then and sure. you know they're very con- it's they're, done, right? But yeah. yeah, that's done. They they're still dealing with it, but we'll check periodically with people, uh, uh, depending on um, you know there's you know how, what our perspective of their emotional state is, and um, and then you get various uh, responses as to whether they're they're glad it's over. Most people are just glad that it's over. Yeah that they don't have to go through, get more paperwork from the Attorney General's office about yet another yeah. Uh, I, appeal. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I I hope that, you know, I I would never have to go through that. And, you know, I, I just commend you for everything that you are doing here. And so I'll give you a little time check here. We've got about, I believe, nine minutes or so left to the show. And I'm hoping that maybe you would consider coming back because we've just kind of, Scratch the surface, and this is just very, very useful and good information for for me and for our audience. But I did want to take some time for you to illuminate us on the the um, information, the the programming that you do with with uh, with law enforcement in terms of memorializing those people and educating um, other families to that, because I know it's an important part of your life as well. Well, yes, I, um, you know, I've always volunteered for for many organizations ever since John was killed. And first, uh, I was quite involved with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and I was on their national board for about seven years. And then when I um, that term ended, um, I came back home. I was on various other different boards and what have you. But um, I really was involved probably more. Um, with the uh, concerns of police survivors and it's a or cops um that some people call it it's a national or uh, nonprofit organization and it was started really to help um and in your own programs uh, it's rebuilding shattered lives and that's their their motto and it's really um law enforcement families um survivors helping one another through uh, after a line of duty death has occurred, and you know, really having that person that is the surviving parent or spouse or sibling, um, grandparent, aunt or uncle, um, the son or daughter, it's it's those individuals connecting with other survivors, and uh, that unique bond that we have because of being law enforcement family. But the other uniqueness is that. Um, it's a different kind of grief than than others because our 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 loved ones were out there doing a job that they enjoyed, they loved to do, and were killed for in various reasons, various ways for various reasons, and um, and you know they should be continue continually honored and remembered and and held to a higher esteem because of the work that they do. And that's what mm-hmm. COPS has been so helpful. I I still remember going to, um, they have a National Law Enforcement Memorial Day and a National Police Week in Washington, D.C. that's held every year. And May 15th is always the National Law Enforcement Memorial Day. And they hold a memorial, and then there's the National Law Enforcement Memorial um, in Washington, D.C., where their names are etched on a memorial, which is just beautiful. 
But this mm-hmm. whole week and of each national- state has their remembrance, right? Because I attended. Yeah, then each, each state has beautiful. their own uh, law enforcement right? memorial as well. Mm-hmm. And these are so important in uh, remembering and honoring our fallen officers, but also supporting those uh, those families and or the coworker survivors of those fallen officers. And so that's what our organization does in is in helping those individuals um, and all of us throughout life, and it's a long-term commitment. So we're un- we're different in a unique way that you know there's a lot of people that kind of ha- come together right at the funeral and after uh, uh, officers killed, but then everybody goes back to their life, and that's really when cops comes in and and really supports the families. It's after. Um, you know, you're sitting there in your living room and saying, now what do I do? Now what do I do? Right. Can you give us some contact information? I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to post it on my social media, and I know that maybe other people would, would, would be interested in learning about it as well. Certainly. Uh, Nationalcops.org um, um, is the website for the National Concerns of Police Survivors. And org. Yeah, nationalcops.org. Oh, nationalcops. Dot org. Yeah. Okay. Then and our and our Arizona chapter is um, cops c o p s arizona dot org. Okay. And if there are listeners out there who are survivors from law enforcement community, like people that I know, would they be? Could they join or or keep up with activities? I mean, all they need to do is go to the National Cops website, and on the website there is every state where there's a cops chapter, they can contact that state. And it doesn't have to be the state where their officer fell. If they happen to live in Arizona and they had a fallen officer in Connecticut and they live in Arizona, then they'd contact Arizona because then, you know, it doesn't matter where your officer fell or what agency is, we're all family. That's oh, that's wonderful. I I think that's that's great. Um, in our in our closing time here, I just wondered, what are you, what are a couple of your future goals that you're wanting to accomplish from this juncture? I mean, I know you're going to continue the good works that you're doing in all these aspects, but what would you like to do? It seems like you've done so much, but what's what's on your plate for the future? I think the continuing efforts of educating people about grief is something that I, I'm always um, wanting to keep, continue to kind of keep, you know, making that noise about um, that the importance of people understanding that or at least um, to take a moment to think about um, how long it takes for people to work through grief. And it's very different, as as you well know, that you mm-hmm. you were initially the victim and then you become a survivor, but there are a lot of people that just stay in that victim in that victim um, uh, point. And so I think it's also the reaching out and helping and encouraging uh, even agencies to support their law enforcement officers that have been affected by uh, fallen off, by by one of their friends being killed. Um, I think that is an important uh, p- perspective. I. I really, uh, I think educating uh, those managements of all the agencies is an important part. As to um, my work with the Department of Corrections, I think constantly is looking and seeing how we can do a better job of supporting the families once they're uh, while they're in the post-conviction victim services. I'm always sitting down and trying to figure out how it is that we can do better, how we can educate some of the other maybe um, prosecuting agencies, how they can do better to kind of transition um, from the prosecution phase to the post-conviction phase, how we can make it a little easier for victims that go through that whole process. Definitely. That's an uphill battle uh, for all of us. Delilah, I would always like to give you parting words because you you always uh, wrap up so well. Uh, what what would you like to to add here at this juncture? Oh, well, I think it's this has just been so informative, um, and I know yeah. the listeners are going to take away a lot of information that probably they didn't know, as we didn't either. So right. I you know, want to thank Jan so much for, yes, mm-hmm. for coming on and, and um, explaining so well, you know, what, what victims can do and, and how to get through this process. Yeah. 
Definitely. So, Jan, thank you so much. Um, and I hope perhaps we might be able to call on you again in the future. And let's keep in touch and keep up the very good work. You're an inspiring person, and I'm so glad that I've made a new friend here. So you can go go back now and enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, we will definitely have this up uh, on our archives and feel free to circulate it. So we're, we're going to sign off now and say thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to pass the word. And we'll be here next Saturday for another edition of Shattered Lives Radio. So good day, everyone. And thanks again, Delilah. And thanks, Dan. Thank you. You're welcome.